Welcome to Forward Together, a podcast from the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign, where we shine a light on the people and ideas that drive the movement to end the evils of systemic racism, poverty, militarism, ecological devastation, and false moral narratives of religious nationalism. Has the apolitical American military become another false moral narrative? On January 6, 2021, Trump supporters terrorized the nation's capital. Vandals who believed Trump won the election were encouraged to fight the Biden-Harris inauguration. Five people died and one Capitol Police officer took his life after the storm. Threatened by domestic terrorism, the Capitol grounds and the Biden-Harris swearing-in ceremonies required 25,000 armed troops to secure Washington, D.C. In Episode 6 of Forward Together, military veteran and Little Rock medical doctor John Brineman, who served two tours of duty in Iraq, recalls the moment he joined the Poor People's Campaign in a live video call with Reverend Barber and why he describes that moment in his life as the most American thing he could think to do. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Nate. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Um, it's, uh, it's exciting to talk about the uh, Poor People's Campaign and, you know, try to answer the question, why me? Why am I involved? To start things off here, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You can tell us where you live, you know, what you're doing, you know, uh, where you come from, anything you want to dispel, we're happy to hear. Sure. Um, I'm coming up hard, fast on turning uh, 65. I, I was born in Tokyo, but have lived uh, since my early teenage years in the U.S. Graduated from medical school in 1980 and um, have uh, recently 2015 retired from from the army. Uh, the first part was active duty, and and the latter half was um, reserve duty. I, I volunteered for two trips to Iraq, and it, it of course I've been thinking about what I might want to share, and um, the the experience of uh, being in uniform and going out to. Uh, defend American values prompted me to do some hard thinking about you know what what on earth do I mean uh, you know what 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 are American values from my point of view and why defend them my first tour was during the summer when we were um, getting ready to elect um, Barack Obama as president and um, you know watching that watching that happen was just exhilarating, but also um, kind of put me to sleep a little bit in terms of my awareness. You know, we've got this African-American president and he's an awesome guy. Well, I guess we're here, you know, we've made it. Well, uh, I wasn't paying attention. And, and to kind of uh, go back um, uh, a little further, um, my dad who's now deceased, Let's see, he was 18 and a half when he was a Marine Corps medic in the Battle of Okinawa. And, and so my dad's service was um, always something that I looked to as one definition of uh, what does bravery look like? So, you know, my dad, 18 and a half years old, is, is doing that. And um, the, the other picture that I had in my mind of what bravery looks like was the the scenes from the Edmund Pettus Bridge. 
And, you know, I, I saw that in the newspaper, I watched it on TV and over and over again. And um, I was flabbergasted then and I'm still stunned when I look at it now um, at the bravery of those folks. Can you, can you expand upon that? What's the Edmund Pettus Bridge event that you're talking about? Well, I mean, just the, the physical bravery at, at one level. You know, these people are getting pounded on. And um, it's, uh, it's terrifying to have um, somebody coming at you trying to hurt you. Um, it doesn't matter who's doing it, but when it's somebody with authority like the police, uh, my goodness, that's, that's a huge, unbelievable bravery, especially in the context of, you know, the Jim Crow South of, of those days. So I always looked at that and said, wow, that's bravery. So my dad's thing. And so I went to Iraq, checked that box. But it was, it was my uh, fond hope that I would never have to check an Edmund Pettus Bridge box. And, um, uh, you know, during, for me, during the uh, uh, George Bush years, uh, I began to get uncomfortable on, on a couple of levels. Um, one of which was that um, as, a, as a Christian, you know, I kept hearing um, people on the political right, you know, no, we're the Christians. They were out there speaking for all of us. And that was, that was not a good thing for me. And um, in fact, it, it drove me out of the church for an extended period of time. But to, to get back to the point I was meandering toward, um, as, as I watched this happen in the George Bush years, and then especially with the disastrous um, events of the past four to five years, it became really clear to me that I was dead wrong. We hadn't won any battles. We'd won some, um, but there were more battles ahead than, than we had behind us. And um, I realized that on, on the basis of, of my faith and kind of my personal definition of what, you know, being a brave person, you know, to use outmoded language, you know, what defines a man, you know, it's manly. I realized that I didn't, didn't really have any choice, um, not as, as a Christian. Um, multiple times, Jesus would um, be asked, you know, basically, What's, what's the formula? How do, you, how, do you, how do you get saved? Or, you know, can you give me the cliff notes on being a righteous person, you know, and, you, uh, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And number two is the zinger, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and in one context, that was immediately followed with the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and so as I slowly, because I spent a long time not paying attention, as as I slowly uh, began to realize how how personally I'd really failed to live up to what I professed as far as faith and and, and my politics. I realized that um, I wasn't being a, a good Samaritan. That being quiet and comfortable was not a sufficient response to the events that surround us. As a, uh, as a soldier, I was so horrified 
at the election of Trump to be our commander in chief that uh, I, I literally did not know what to do. As a, by that time, I was a retired soldier. That man and and uh, the political movement that got him there was so so much the opposite of the America that I thought I was defending. That um, I could only think of two things that morning after the election. Number one was I wanted to break something, so I grabbed an electric toothbrush and hurt my back breaking it. Those things are pretty tough, so I don't recommend that. Pick the softer target. And then the second was the thought of having my retired military feet on American soil on the day when that man became commander-in-chief was impossible. So we spent a weekend in Canada so that I you know, <laughs> wasn't here when it happened. Yeah. Um, which was kind of nice, but um, certainly was not enough. Um, but Sandy and I headed off to Canada um, just in a quandary. What on earth uh, can we do in response to this? You know, our faith requires us to do something. You know, how do we figure out what it is? And, and, and my understanding of, uh, you know, my duty as a, as a soldier was, well, I couldn't just watch. I needed to, to do something. And the big question was, what? Yeah. And we didn't know. It sounds like what you're saying is that uh, these different signposts along the way kind of led to your activating you, basically, into activism. It, it really did. Yeah, seeing your, seeing your dad's bravery and correlating that bravery to the bravery on uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge. And then... Uh, Barack Obama becoming president, and you're like, well, this is this is a special moment. This must mean that we're we're getting somewhere. And I think what's what's interesting when you said that, what th what came to my mind is I think a lot of people believe that. There's a lot of folks who are saying, hey, this is this is a sign that we have finally gotten somewhere, right? We've we've gotten to the promised land, but we we were fooled. Right. Yeah, I think that's a the Great Awakening. I think has been especially when you hear the experiences he had as president and how, how much opposition he faced so much of it was um, deeply problematic and deeply racist. We're like, wait a minute. So Sandy and I are getting on the plane with this question in our heads. Well, um, we are called to do something. What? And um, I don't know from, from whom, but Sandy had heard about that Reverend Barr was going to, um, you know, talk about kicking off a new Poor People's Campaign on Inauguration Day. And so, so um, on Inauguration Day, um, we sat in our hotel room and, and participated in that video conference call with Dr. Barber and Reverend Thea Harris and others. And that was when we realized that for us, this was what we could do um, and, and what, we, what we wanted to do. Um, because Reverend Barber and uh, the, the Poor People's Campaign, um, you know, provide uh, a structure and we've got a basic philosophy and it's very welcoming. And it's the, the most absolutely American thing I can think of doing. Hmm. You know, we're 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 standing up for for freedom. You know, we were we were a little 
not a little, but we were kind of scared. You know, what, what is it we're going to have to do? Because, you know, we, we don't want to be stupid or silly. And, uh, you know, we don't want to get gratuitously thrown in jail. And, and so for us, the PPC was um, literally an answer to prayer. What can we do? Yeah. That's, that's interesting you talk about that, that um, um, your Christian faith, this uh, the Poor People's Campaign was kind of a confirmation of your Christian values and how you were comparing that to your experiences during the Bush years. What was interesting about the Bush years, it was a very, very strong moral uh, push, for, but a very specific moral expression. And that, that moral expression was very much on a certain um, wing of Christian thought. And you just mentioned that you felt uncomfortable during that time because it was conflicting with your Christian values. Can you kind of expand that about that a little bit? What was that discomfort like? There were two things about it that really um, disturbed me. And one is, is that there was clearly a, a racist element to, to that um, uh, school of thought. That was mostly dog whistle racism, but it was certainly there. Yeah, it was it was coded language. It was, you know, let's talk about this, but but we'll we'll try to use these uh, softer terms. Mm-hmm. But if you if you examine the demographics of that group, you know, who was doing it? It was the same white Christians that couldn't stand the idea of desegregating, letting uh, um, people of color vote couldn't stand the idea of reconstruction, and before that, couldn't stand the idea of uh, abolishing slavery. It's the same thing over and over and over. So that was was part of it. Um, uh, To me, you know, you you pull off the first layer of the onion, and it's a real stinky mess. Um, So that was one. And the other part was was that it was so um, prescriptive. I don't know if I'm using that word right, but these folks purported to define Christian thought and behavior yeah. for us, and it didn't—it didn't match up with, um, you know, how I read the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, which basically comes down to those, you know, cliff notes of the Bible. Uh, those two things, and yeah. number two is love your neighbor as yourself, and being a bigot doesn't cut it. And um, doing what I was doing, which was um, doing nothing, that doesn't cut it either. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've, we've heard it a lot in the past couple of weeks um, with George Floyd, but, um, you know, silence is, is consent. Mm, yeah. Been a silent consenter for a long time. You know, I let passing the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Act and uh, Barack Obama's president. I said, well, cool. Yeah. I don't need to do anything. Right. We're, we're headed in the right direction. And, and yeah. we're not. Yeah, it's interesting when you're describing the, uh, the conflicting version of Christianity that you were seeing there in the early 2000s. Um, I was... Um, just entering my adult life at that point. I was in my early 20s. And I was not quite as in tune as you're, you're talking about here at all of that. I was, I was kind of just going along on, on board with the idea of, you know, having a moral compass to our 
you know, a president and, the, and his administration. But it kind of it was like a rise of the moral majority that began in the 1980s. Feel like it really hit its stride during the Bush administration. You know, it was it was so much of even if you didn't listen to the to the words, just the tone of it was so angry and mean spirited sounding. Even if I didn't speak English, I would pick up on that. And that's not that's not Christianity. It's not that's not Jesus talking. When when you hear that, and then other things started to get added to the mix. Mm. Somehow, a perverted interpretation of the Second Amendment became part of the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> and I've looked and looked through through my Bible, and I can't even find the word gun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's not it's not there. Yeah. And and uh, it's a poor reading of of the Second Amendment. Yeah. And 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 so, you know, I was I was a frog in the water, yeah. and it took Donald Trump to to kick me in the butt. And to my shame and and chagrin, that's what it took. Well, it's definitely a. Uh, I think there's a wake up call for a lot of us. I'm the same as you. As far as I had no activism awareness or any any inkling to be a part of any kind of social movement until Donald Trump came along, and it wasn't so much that I was. Man, in fact, I voted against Barack Obama every time because I was I was still in this very unique way of thinking. And during my evolution of of thought and opening up to new ideas and um, becoming more social conscious, I was I definitely didn't vote for Donald Trump, but I was activated by him for sure and. Unlike you, I didn't throw a toothbrush around, <laughs> but my wife and I we shed some tears over it, like you know, because it's like it, it felt so uh, like a incredible punch in the gut. Not this, not for, not necessarily for us, but for the communities that we we were beginning to become more aware of the communities of color, the immigrant communities, the marginalized communities who 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 he had completely alienated during his campaign. I was like, there's no way this guy could. How can how can his message resonate with folks? And the fact that it did, in the midst of all the marginalization, all that uh, evil rhetoric, I was like, "This is where are we in this country?" And it it broke my heart. So it did me too, and um, it left me as a I, I just retired from the army after over 35 years with a commission um, in February of 2015. And I was just so, I, I felt, uh, as I realized what was bubbling up as we got ready for that, that presidential election, you know, I just realized that this was, we, we were seeing something evil. It, it's one thing to be, have somebody as a political opponent, right. but it's another thing to come to the conclusion that in fact, what they're selling is evil. Yeah. And, and I came to that conclusion, which was very uh, distressing, but was, mm. was part of what um, got me out of my complacency. You talked about you know, that you were active in the Army during the time that you were, which made me realize, of course, you were active during 9-11. Actually, I came in shortly after that. Okay. okay. I, I had a brief hiatus. That's what got me back in the second time. That was bogus. Yeah. 9-11 was, was of course, a, a real grievous 
uh, insult to the nation, but the rationale for going to war in Iraq was was invented. Yeah. Yeah, I was just I was just about to mention that you know we've spent what um, is it six trillion dollars uh, since then. It's some some huge amount in more nineteen years, and and we're still there. Yeah. So and uh, we know that you know, with the campaign we are tackling five pillars that we feel like these pillars are actually interlocking pillars: uh, systemic racism, uh, systemic poverty. And the war economy, ecological devastation, and these false moral narratives that of white Christian nationalism. And so you, you kind of touched on some of those things already. You kind of mentioned how you were witnessing the, the false moral narratives that were coming out of even the Bush administration in that, that time before uh, uh, that era in our history. And uh, we talked about um, even the impact of the military economy at post 9-11 and the war on terror rhetoric and all that stuff, even those two things mingling together, right? It was like, it was a moral obligation. We have a moral obligation to engage in the war on terror. Can you, can you reflect upon that time and what you thought? Yeah, it was very um, uncomfortable for me personally and, and for, I think, uh, some other soldiers, you know, people are pretty quiet about politics in, in the military. Yeah. Um, but it was just so uncomfortable when people would do the thank you for your service thing. I wanted to ask you, well, what do you think about this? And if they said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm over here with Jerry Falwell, I'd say, I wasn't there defending that. Mm. You know, let me tell you what, what I was defending. And, and so I, I, I felt very um, abused. Mm. Um, in a in a certain sense that you know I was I was wrong and um, you know in fact uh, I, I slowly came to the conclusion that it was pretty tough to make a moral case for me personally to be in Iraq except mm. for the fact that I'm a doctor so I have that excuse well I'm taking care of it so, yeah. so that, that was how I, how I finessed that I don't know what I would have done if I was an infantry officer, I probably would have stayed very quiet. And, and, uh, yeah. And now, as interesting, you talk about being a doctor in, in the Army, in Iraq. Obviously, you don't have to get into great detail, but you know, I'm sure you, you saw the carnage. At a remove, almost all of the docs, because we're so uh, naive tactically, um, we're essentially restricted to post. Okay. And and things would um, uh, things would be brought in, mm -hmm. and and uh, because of my role in actually in 2008, I was basically functioning as a general practitioner. Things had become very very quiet. So right after the Fallujah events and and the difficulties in Ramadi, mm -hmm. but by the time I got there, it was really quiet. The most blood I saw the whole time I was there was from my own leg from a, a, a stupid uh, running injury. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just stupid. Uh, the second time I was there as um, the Army calls it command surgeon, but it's equivalent to chief medical officer for the logistics command. And at that level, um, I didn't have any um, direct patient care duties. Um, 
the biggest issue was uh, helping to figure out when somebody needed to be evacuated. You know, if it was if they had a bullet hole, that was in the brain. Yeah. But the other stuff was often pretty tough. And the biggest part of that was um, psychological mm. distress, which was really a big thing. We had a we had a huge um, problem with suicides. Um, some of those I did get involved in investigating. That was just sad and, and tragic. I had one of my docs. I I had to send home in his second week there because um, he developed PTSD essentially. Wow. But in terms of blood on my hands from you know, so I had a, I had a I had a, a safe uh, tidy war as far as the yeah well i think you hit on something pretty important that's why we're you know one of the issues that really impacts what we're uh, all about as far as fighting uh systemic poverty is we talk about again the interlocking nature of these five elements and the war economy how it ends up exacerbating the poverty issue because you're talking about mental health and ptsd and the impact that it has on our veterans. And so uh, do you have any any insight or reflections on what you've seen as far as um, even back here in the States and, and how that's played out? Two parts of it that I think of, uh, a fair bit about. And um, the first is the fact that I think we've had like 2.3 million or some huge number of American service people who've rotated in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan. It's a big number. And um, certainly the folks who were in Iraq, it was an unjust war. You know, you could make an argument for entry into Afghanistan because that was where those events, um, uh, that's where they came from. But Iraq, um, and I can guarantee you that um, those of us in uniform over there knew we were not engaging in a righteous path. That was a righteous thing to take good care of each other. Right. But the, the big picture thing, it was not not good. And that's really stressful, yeah. especially um, for younger people when you're yanked away from home for a year at a time. Um, we had a huge divorce problem. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and so there was, there was that piece of it. But as, as I came home, I realized that that I I actually had something useful to bring to the conversation, particularly living in the South. I work at an insurance company now, so I wear a suit and tie most of the time. <laughs> and I have an Iraq uh, uh, campaign medal lapel pin, and um, I've worked that. I've worked it. Um, you know, I'll find myself in in the middle of a conversation, and I'll go, well, you know, actually. Uh, have you ever been a soldier born in uniform? I go, no. I go, well, you know, I was there. I'm a retired army officer. And what you're saying is, is wrong. Mm. You know, what you're saying about those events and um, with with that badge and, and as people who knew me um, um, understood that I was a vet, I was privileged to express a different opinion. I said, I go, well, you know, actually, I'm a, 
I'm an Iraq dad and God's army and I'm a Christian and I don't buy that one bit. Right. <laughs> you know, those are not those are not the values I went over there. Yeah. So so that's I've been able to work that, especially in the South where we have this culture of thank you for your service, which makes me nuts because I always want to ask them who they voted for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have these war campaigns and that are still ongoing. And then you have this, um, the impact it has on poverty levels. We know that veterans are you know, experiencing a high level of poverty coming back from traumatic wars and, and uh, engagement that they're experiencing. It's a huge, huge problem. And in my last Army Reserve job, I was in charge of the, the military front end of the disability process. You've got a mm-hmm. military piece and then you've got a Veterans Administration piece. Both of them take forever. Yeah. Um, at least the military part did did when I started. We 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 did better um, over time. But I began to understand that for many, particularly National Guard troops, mm. uh, and particularly um, National Guard troops from non-urban areas, okay. for for uh, rural Arkansas, for example. There were a lot of these people for whom for whom their drill pad was their paycheck, mm. you know, because yeah. they're unemployment. You know, finding a great job if you're living in you know Podunk, Tennessee is a tough thing. And and so what would happen is these guys would get and women would get banged up to the point where they could not do their military job, mm. and so they get shun it out they well, well you can't be in uniform but what was wrong with them wasn't enough for them to get a disability compensation and so for these folks um and for the folks who are waiting for all their file process there was no equivalent to workman's comp. so you were down and you were just out of luck now that changed um uh, over time and they came up with something like uh, workman's comp. Okay. Uh, um, it, it was terrible because you know I realized that if I said this guy, um, this soldier wasn't physically sound enough to do another tour in Iraq, I might be doing terrible things to him financially. Right. Wow. That's a great, uh, great point. A good, a really good insight there. I appreciate you sharing that. This way, the way the system works and how you know you can be someone who's doing all the right things you're working hard you're doing your job and then you get banged up for some reason you know you, you, know, you love to have your piece of machinery and your back go, you, your back gets uh, rinsed up whatever it happens to be and then before you know it you're right. out the door <laughs> and you're now having to figure out how to kind of move forward yeah. alive with that kind of injury so oh yeah yeah and uh if you start to look at the demographics of who's you know who's going outside the wire well, there's a huge over-representation uh, of people of color mm-hmm. and poor folks, you know, so, so there's, there's that issue as well. You know, uh, the, the uh, system is happy to get these people and happy to use them up. And, and that, that burden falls just like it always has on those who, who don't have the means to escape that role.
Yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you. That's something I've, I've been thinking about for a while. And it seems like we have orientated our society, our economy, to where through policymaking, through lack of political will on the federal and state level, we've almost created the only real system of opportunity for people who are in low wealth or disadvantaged situations is to join the military, almost like we're intentionally funneling our poor into military service. Is that kind of uh, gel with you, Keith? What do you think about that? I, I think there's no question that um, as, as you look at the most junior enlisted personnel, there's a huge um, uh, overrepresentation of folks who are poor. Mm. And, and for, for a lot of these folks, the military, um, if they could get through their tour of duty, the military provided them with an opportunity um, to go to college, mm. you know, with the GI um, so that was a big, a big motivator too. But um, it was these same folks who get blown up yeah. and uh, you know get the bad bird uh, over and over again. I, I I don't have statistics, but just my eyes were telling me that yeah. if you're if you're infantry and you're enlisted, you're very highly likely to be a person of color mm. and almost certain for. Because, you know, it, it, it baffles me that we have such a overwhelmingly bloated budget for the military-industrial complex. Cut all these other programs so that we can maintain that and, and, and grow the amount of money that goes to that. And the result being, like we just talked about, well, if, if you want to get a chance to go to college because you can't get student loans or you, you can't pay for it, well, you might as well go in the military and that's your chance. I've got a great story about life in the Army that, that sheds some light on why so much money gets dumped into it. I was um, sent to uh, Ramadi with a group of MPs who were supposed to guard a prison. Well, we got there and there wasn't a prison, there was just a field. <laughs> and so, you know, that was, that was a different mission. So we were told, oh, no, no problem, guys. You can guard building the prison. So, okay, whatever. And, well, we got a month into that, and then we got word, we really didn't want you to build a prison in Ramadi. We would like you to do so, or we would like you guys to go to a place called Taji, where you can run a prison that's already been built. And so we get there, and it was under construction. So no no prisoners. And uh, um, I did a, uh, a health inspection of it which was just standard you know it's I guess it's Geneva Convention stuff you know if you're gonna have POWs you need to take care of them according to specifications so the the prison building was there were two of them was a two-story metal closet hut mm. that only had a porthole at either end so there was no air yeah. this is Iraq so I'm sitting there with my notebook going, oh man, this is bad. And the sergeant who was showing me around says, oh no, wait, sir, there's more. And he takes me inside the building, puts on a, a glove and punches his arm right through the cinder block wall. And I go, that's not very secure. And he says, well, no, we kind of got ripped off on the cinder block. And I, you know, I'm going, oh my gosh, this place has got to close. And he said, no, sir, there's more. 
and he took me upstairs to where they'd installed the uh, uh, the remedy for the crummy cinder blocks, which was to put this this sort of wide chicken wire. And he goes, well, sir, how long do you want your shiv to be? And he puts his gloves on and starts worrying this metal. And, you know, he's got a 12-inch <laughs> weapon in no time at all. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, this is just terrible. And he said, oh, no, wait, sir, there's more. Takes me up in the guard tower, and uh, it was right next to what we called the Taji Eternal Flame, which is one of these dumps where they put everything. And so we go up in the tower and there's the Eternal Flame over on my right. And to my left and in front of me are what they call Blackwater pits, which sewage and whatever, um, which, which is problematic, but particularly problematic when the prevailing winds blow back through you know, your prison compound. And I'm just shaking my head going, oh my goodness. And he, and this is impossible. And he says, no way, there's more. And he took me to the other side of the compound. We go up in a guard tower and there's a two or three story high pile of artillery shells and bombs. And he points to that and I go, well, what would happen if like a mortar round landed in that? And he said, well, they told us everything had the fuses, but it could just blow everything up. They said, we can't operate a prison here. It would be illegal. So then their mission became taking down that prison in time. Oh, my goodness. What? <laughs> Hundreds of young men and women yanked up the families to just get yanked around in Iraq. There, there is, there is one thing I, I wanted to, I should have mentioned earlier, but I forgot. So after, after watching Dr. Barber's session on inauguration day, you know, Sandy and I, on well, we want to be a part of this, but how do we do? And and um, pretty soon thereafter, um, there was uh, announced an organizational meeting. I think we were in Alabama. I can't remember. It was either Alabama or Mississippi, but Sandy and I got to go and got to meet Dr. Barber and and met um, many of the folks who are who are some of the folks who are on our um, PPC committee now. And so that meeting was where uh, Sandy and I finally understood that we can we can do this you know, because, because we've got good leadership. But I think the most eye-opening thing about the PPC that in my white privilege cluelessness, I did not understand, which is the fact that, you know, I wasn't there to lead. You know, we, 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 um, we wanted to get impacted people out in front as much as possible. And, and the PPC does that um, very consistently and effectively, it's absolutely the way to do it. And, and this past weekend, the they session just hammered it home um, very effectively. And, and that's been something that was an interesting lesson to learn, which is that, hey, Mr. Highly Qualified, older, relatively affluent white guy, you're not here to lead. <laughs> you're here to serve. And uh, that's that's been a, a very good experience yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. 
And the the weekend you're talking about is the um, June 20, 2020 uh, mass uh, moral march that we had to do uh, via digital because of COVID-19. And uh, it was a very powerful uh, weekend of live streams and videos that the, the national campaign put on. We did have some Arkansas folks who were on it too. And uh, that was really exciting to see their representation. Just like John was that saying. Was really cool. I saw Maria and Kaleem and Solomon and Anika. Yeah. Did, did I miss anybody? Or? India. India was on there too from down there. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. And she had, a, she had a very powerful message to share, and that was really great. You mentioned that, I think it's, I'm just really fascinated by, uh, you're talking about the conflict you're having viewing the direction that the national narrative was during the Bush administration about this morality and this uh, Christian rhetoric that you were like, it was kind of friction for you. And then you come along and you find the poor people's campaign and it kind of resonates with your Christian values. Can you kind of, uh, kind of expand on that a little bit? What, what about the campaign that really felt like it was in line with, with your faith? The, the, the um, thing that the poor people's campaign did did for me was to bring into sharp focus um, the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Mm. And my neighbor includes folks who are oppressed and beaten down yeah. and um, struggling every day for stuff that, that I, take, I take for granted. Yeah. And um, I couldn't be a neighbor in the Christian sense of that passage without understanding that my neighborhood was a little bigger than, than I'd conceived of it previously because I'd gotten morally lazy. Mm. Having your concept of your neighborhood expanding, how did you go about informing yourself or educating yourself on what it means to be from in a bigger neighborhood? What does it mean to have neighbors and their their stories? What led you to believe those stories versus saying, well, let's just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We need to do some more bootstrap pulling here. We need to work harder. And why did why did that why did you have more empathy than you had that yeah, other direction? Yeah, that's a really great question. In my life, I was was not interacting with structure. And and by that I mean, you know, I'm the doctor and you're not. You know that, or or I'm I'm the colonel and you're not. And um, so to have the opportunity to actually listen to people and and sit across the table from them and uh, you know reading um, Dr. Barber's book and and other things that um, uh, folks have pointed us to, it was just an eye opener. Mm. More so for me than Sandy. She's a much better person than than am I. I was mm. fortunate. Um, and for Almost 30 years, she's been um, uh, very deeply involved in ministry work in Haiti mm. um, with the women's cooperative. So, you know, I let her do that and carefully avoided drawing any uh, conclusions that, well, maybe maybe there's, there's something to that. Mm. But uh, it was just it was just slow. And it's, uh, it, it embarrasses and, and shames me to think about um, how easily I let myself get put to sleep. Yeah. And, and at my age now that I've, I've looked at, I've come to understand the, the problem and to realize that, you know, we're fighting the same battles yeah. that, 
Dr. King fought back 50 plus years. Mm. And it, it saddens me to think that this is a battle that it may go on for a while. Yeah. I don't know that I'm going to be privileged uh, to live long enough to see um, that we get to over that hill to the promised land. I hope so. And my effort is intended to make that happen. But as a, a, a Christian, um, I've come to understand through the PPC that it's not my job to understand um, what the future is going to be. It's my job to make it be something. Yeah. You know, I'm, you know, that's God level stuff. And, um, one of the lessons for me has been shut up and, and, and work, you know, maybe you'll get to see things happen and maybe you're not, you, you won't, but you still, the work is, is a requirement. Nothing will happen if people don't do the work. I appreciate you saying that. That kind of really highlights an important aspect of being a part of any substantial movement as it's, you got to have a mindset of this is a marathon, not a race, you know, a sprint. You know, you're looking at a long-term um, battle because, you know, systems of power don't just yield because we're, you know, loud and aggressive. It takes, it takes time and it takes consistency. So I appreciate you kind of acknowledging that. Kind of what I was thinking about while you were talking was this concept of beloved community to where, like you said, you know, we're building towards something, the promised land that resembles the beloved community. That's a powerful image. And, you know, it's, it's an image of uh, inclusivity and, and togetherness. One, one of our, our four kids is, is gay. We've been privileged to, to be embarrassed about our, our lack of uh, compassion for LGBTQ uh, uh, friends and family in our community. Um, our son Colin um, is gay and, and um, sad to report we were not instantly supportive. We, we were pretty lame, um, but we're, we've gotten a lot better. We were, we were delighted to have our son um, marry his uh, partner um, earlier this year. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah, and uh, uh, it was it was absolutely delightful. So, you know, God's given us opportunities to redeem some things we've not done so well. I will tell you this, just from uh, just hearing you talk and uh, identifying that you're, you know, mid-60s in age and still learning, still growing, still willing to listen and, and, and adapt and change and open up your heart with an aspiration to create beloved community. Um, it really gives me hope because, I mean, you're at, the, you're at the age that my parents are at, my wife's parents are at, and people we know are at that age group that some aren't quite so willing to listen and learn. Some are very well. <laughs> uh, and so just seeing that, that example you're showing here, that it's never, never too late to begin to allow uh, new, holistic, heavenly narratives to be able to be formed in your life. We've, we've been really blessed to um, have the opportunity in, in our church to be visible. We helped start the church. We're church planners, um, and it turned into kind of a little mini denomination. 
But so folks know we helped start the church and they know I'm a retired army guy. And they also know that we support LGBTQ rights. And we firmly believe that the church is in error to the point of heresy to continue to uh, deny fellowship to um, our brothers and sisters in, in uh, the LGBTQ uh, community. Yeah. That's great. That's powerful. That's that. Uh, that's impactful. Just knowing that those those kind of places are out there is so needed because it is a oasis at times. It seems like it really is. And and one of the um, the things that you know I mentioned how you know my dad kind of for me defined um, you know what bravery was with his military service. And so you know he set an example. I go well, you know I I want to be like like him. When I, when I grow up. But, but I think there's something powerful to be said for being an example. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, our kids know that we spend time and uh, emotional energy and, and funds in, in the pursuit of, of justice. Yeah. And, and that's meant something to them. Our son, Colin, who just got married, um, in the next few days, he'll be starting um, in the uh, civil rights uh, office of the city of Baltimore. Wow, fantastic! So that's that's, pretty, that's, pretty, that's a success. Yeah. And uh, all our, our all our children are are very um, delightfully progressive and uh, and involved. And and um, I think at least part of that was that you know mom and dad were out there. So I, you know, I, I'm proud that we've been able to have uh, some impact on four kids, and we have two grandkids, and um, you know, we've been privileged, it seems to be, uh, to have an impact on the future that will long uh, outlast us. Well, I just want to circle back for a second. You know, you talked about how when you saw Barack Obama get elected, that was like, oh, here we are, we've arrived. Then you, you realize that that wasn't the case as we went along. And then Donald Trump's election led to you uh, finding the Poor People's Campaign and, and becoming an active in the campaign. And that being kind of your first real taste of social justice work, correct? Well, no, actually, as, uh, as in high school, I lived in the D.C. Burbs, and um, I was at a high school appropriate level involved in um, – anti-Vietnam War protest. Okay. Okay. So that was our, that was often the weekend's entertainment. <laughs> and, and, and my dad, uh, Marine Corps vet, at that time was in the middle of a, uh, a career with uh, one of the intelligence agencies. Wow. He was totally cool with that. Wow. You know, he thought that was like, <laughs> you're yeah. doing it. That's and um, that was really powerful. Uh, thing for me, I did I did not realize un until I was late in in high school that I was the only kid in the room who knew anything about American socialism, for example. Yeah. And if, you know, I mean, my dad just kept telling me these stories, and um, you know, his his example is I don't know that I'd be where I am today in terms of being involved in the struggle without my dad's example of, no, you know, 
this this is real stuff. Mm. Your dad influenced you, and here you are at this point in your life doing the work and seeing that your kids have seen y'all involved, and they're beginning, they, they kind of feel the stirrings, not only from y'all, but from, probably from other influence as well. That encourages me because, I mean, my kids are, the oldest is just about to graduate high school. Actually, she did graduate high school. She's starting her um, young adult life. And, you know, I, I hope that they can find their way as well to work towards this beloved community that we hope for. And so you, you hope that you're giving them an example. You hope that you're saying the things that they need to hear. You're hoping that you're planting these seeds that will blossom someday into something that could help reshape the world in a better way. And just to hear that it's happening in your world does give me encouragement. I hope it encourages, encourages others as well that that's, that is something that can happen. It, it has for us, and, and our, our, our kids have um, uh, had an influence on people around them. And that's been, been really uh, sweet to see. You know, involvement in, in the PPC work, in, in my mind, is kind of like being a, a parent. It's a job that never stops. doesn't matter how old the kids get, you know, you're still dad. Yeah. And no matter what we achieve politically in this election, even if we reenact the Voting Rights Act and we do this long list, of things that should be done um, for justice, uh, for the sake of justice, we're still going to be stuck with the distorted moral narrative piece. And that's the original sin that has hung with us from from the beginning with slavery and everything that's followed uh, through from that. And um, I won't see the end of that battle. It's going to be long term, but we'll, we'll win. Yeah, you're right. The false moral narratives of that led to justification for the enslavement of Africans, the genocide of indigenous people, the uh, the alienization of immigrants of color, and uh, on and on and on. Uh, one thing I wanted to, wanted to kind of touch on that you while you were talking, you talked about how you kind of use different words, but the word I want to use is you feel you feel some humility that's come from. Um, getting getting to your you're getting to this place where you are now, kind of later in life, whether it was even the slow response to your your gay son, or or getting into this campaign work slowly, and it, it does create some humility. You call it, I think, you call it shame or or guilt, um, but it does allow you to be a humble. And to me, it seems like, and I like to talk about this a little bit as well, from our perspective, you and I are European American, straight, cisgender. Males, which you can't get any more privileged in this country than that. What that does is because we we do tend to have these incredible blind spots, and we do tend to have these these. Uh, it takes us we're slower to respond to the needs to marginalize and the oppressed. And to me, it feels like it should create a, an incredible amount of humility on our part when we get engaged in this type of work because of the immense amount of privilege that we carry. So can you kind of, uh, from your experience and what you, what, how you approach that, or use that, use that with the campaign? Moses didn't get to go into the promised land by accident. It's because he hadn't followed orders, you know, and they happen to be God's orders. I didn't follow my orders. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, uh, I decided that, you know, I wasn't a bigot. So I was cool, yeah. <laughs> and, and I was I was fair to people. Yeah. So I was counted among the righteous.
but that's clearly not enough. And I think like Moses, the fact that I didn't do the job, yeah. I haven't been at this work for, you know, I'm 60, almost 65. Right. Um, I've had a lot of time where I could have been engaged, but I didn't. And I, I didn't do anything. Why do you think it's easy for us to not get engaged? Why do you think that is? Part of it was that I didn't personally suffer mm. from, you know, things have been not easy. I worked hard, but I've had, you know, all the advantages. I get near the door and it opens. <laughs> and I get through that door and the next door, well, it's an automatic door too. Yeah. And even being a doctor, I mean, I've been in front of this always and didn't, didn't draw some necessary uh, conclusions. Mm. You know, I have to think, you know, what would have been like if I'd spent the last 40 years paying attention? Maybe things wouldn't be as bad as they are. You know, I don't know. It's definitely, looking back, it's definitely hard to, to not wonder what, what could, could have been. But we definitely have hope for what's what's to come, you know. And and uh, this uh, poor people's campaign definitely, like you said, is a vehicle that allows for so many people from so many different backgrounds, faith traditions, lived experiences to come together and find a common bond of these these five issues we talk about. Even if you're not on board with all five, you'll find something that you are, are part, want to be a part of. And we we have a a uh, way to get that get that going. So. I think that's kind of neat as well. It's yeah, it's absolutely uh, fantastic how uh, deliberately and overtly um, inclusive the Poor People's Campaign is. Um, Dr. Barber and Dr. T. Harris and and others, you know, they always mention their uh, Jewish brothers and their Buddhist brothers and sisters and their Muslim brothers and sisters and their brothers and sisters who don't have faith in a God. And opening the door like that is, you know, from the Christian perspective, is fundamentally Christian. <laughs> but I think from the justice perspective, it's brilliant. Yeah. And um, that's part of, of, you know, why, why I think that, you know, again, speaking as a Christian, I think God's going to use the Poor People's Campaign to change hearts. And uh, as, as we change hearts, then um, lives and, and life circumstances will change. And, um, you know, I, I wish I could see the end of the race. I'm, it's not going to happen. Yeah. But I'm glad to be, uh, you know, in the boat rowing or whatever the right metaphor is. That's right. I agree with that. And, it, and like you said, it's, it's not about trying to instant gratification. It's such an important value in our culture understand that that's not necessarily what we bring to this campaign. It's a put your head down, let's get to work. And so I just want to say thank you, John, for spending this time with me. That's a wonderful conversation and um, just really, really grateful for it. Well, I'm, I'm very uh, I'm glad to have had the opportunity to talk about uh, a subject I could talk all, all day about. It's been um, just an incredible blessing for Sandy and I uh, and our family to have the opportunity to engage in some radical followership, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, with good
good leadership. You know, we see that at the national level, we've got fantastic leadership uh, here in Arkansas with the Poor People's Campaign. And to anybody who happens to, to hear the podcast, I would ask you to go on the web. Uh, there's Facebook stuff that I personally don't know much about, but it's there. And, but most importantly, listen, you know, just come and listen. It's not an exercise in doing anything beyond being welcoming and acting out on, on being welcoming. It's a great place to be. The work is, is vast and, and there's something for anybody, everybody to do. And um, at the very least to, to learn about it. That's right. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm honored to have the opportunity to talk about it. And it's been a great, great pleasure. And, you know, I think, I think we're at, we're at a transfer moment. Mm. In, in history, and we, we've seen that with uh, uh, George Floyd's murder and the response to that, and I think we're increasingly able to see the um, COVID virus crisis as good evidence of what's wrong with um, much of America. Uh, those who are suffering are the same folks who always suffer from the bad stuff, disproportionately. So we're, we're at a time when folks are paying attention yeah. and um, I, I, we've got this huge opportunity handed to us and we, we need to put on our boots and get marching. That's right. Thank you. That's, I, I agree completely. I appreciate you, John, being with me. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation today. The Arkansas Poor People's Campaign lifts up the voices of those impacted by the evils of injustice. This podcast is aligned with our national mission, and we'd like to invite you to join in on the conversation. If you are interested in sharing your story in one of our upcoming podcasts, reach out. Send us an email at arkansas at poorpeoplescampaign.org. That's arkansas at poorpeoplescampaign.org. Place podcast guest in the subject line. We invite activists and members of the community and welcome everyone to speak their truth on the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign podcast. All members and partners with Arkansas Poor People's Campaign are invited and welcome. Forward Together is a production of the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign. Today's host was Nate Davis. Producers, Nate Davis, Tobias Peoples, and David Coffey. Script written by Anissa Rayford Ford. Intro and outro songs created by the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and instrumentals created by David Coffey. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with the Arkansas Poor People's Campaign on Facebook at Arkansas Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, on Twitter at Arkansas PPC on Instagram at Arkansas Poor People's Campaign, or by going to www.poorpeoplescampaign.org backslash Arkansas. Thank you for listening, and feel free to share this podcast with others. Until next time, forward together, not one step back.